On the Empire Podcast this week, we bring you another scintillating Ibrahimovic-esque hat-trick in the form of interviews with Maid of Stone, Shane Meadows and Mark Herbert. We say hello, hello ladies creator, to hello ladies creator Stephen Merchant and the one and only Harrison Ford drops by to tell us about Ender's Game and Jim Morrison's Kitchen. All that and more on the only movie podcast that has a simple solution to Britain's growing false widow spider problem, John Goodman. You're welcome, world. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Joining me this week are three contractually obliged colleagues who are all delighted to be here. Isn't that right, people? Yes. First up, you just heard her, is our geek queen, who also happens to be something of a theatre buff, not that you could tell from the stage show she went to this week. Oh. So just how was former pop idol star Darius Dinesh in Tim Rice's musical version of From Here to Eternity, Helen O'Hara? Um, he's Darius Campbell, they say. He is, but I, I, he will always I know, be Darius Dinesh to me. Um, do you know what? He was actually pretty good. Um, and I thought it was going to be dreadful. Um, I apologise to all those who've worked hard on making it. I thought it was going to be bad because why, of all things, would you make a musical out of From Here to Eternity? It's as yeah. ridiculous as making a musical out of Les Mis. But it's actually <laughs> rather good. The, there are some catchy songs um, and he does a very, very good blues number. At one point, um, a blues number. Blues number. A blues number. Yeah, the blues. Okay. He sings the blues. He won't be able to notice it because, of course, he's colourblind. Oh. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> told me it could be so good. Nobody said it'd be so beautiful. He also looks like Cary Grant these days. Carry on. By okay. the way, who is he? Darius Dinesh. He came third in the series of Pop Idol. The that Will first, Young won. Mm, first or second? I can't, yeah, maybe the first one. The Will Young one beating Gareth Gates. It was a oh. huge shock at the time, Dan. You must have. You must have seen something about it on what the year was this? television box. Uh, that was probably 2001. 2001? Yeah. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, no, I did a lot of drugs back then. And then apparently, and this was before uh, we all started an empire, but apparently Darius, at the height of his, and I'm going to use air quotes here, fame, uh, popped into the empire office because apparently he's a big fan. So Darius, if you're listening, huge fan. Love you, guy. Yeah, awesome. Uh, he popped in the Empire office and just kind of hung around awkwardly for about 20 minutes oh, until people ran out of small talk and he went away. From here to eternity, he's just over the road from our office. We it should, is. We should just pop in with a new issue. Darius, come on the podcast anytime. Open invitation. Uh, next up is a man whose favourite Woody Allen film is Bananas. His favourite film about a Volkswagen with a mind of its own is Herbie Goes Bananas. And his favourite film of all time is Bananas in Pyjamas, the movie... It's banana enthusiast, Dan Jolin. Hello, Dan. Hello, I'm very pleased to be me. Do you like that I've seared in on the one part of your personality, the one part of you, which mm. is that you have a banana every mm. day at 11am? Mm. That's I, it, that defines you I for think, me. I, you know, I, I've often said that the media today, in, in, you know, in this day and age, has become too horrendously reductive, mm. definitely symptomatic of that problem. Dan has a banana holder. He carries bananas in a banana holder. so They don't get bruised. Well, there you go. If you spend that much time on bananas, then... Actually, I forgot to bring my banana up here with me. Is yeah, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. Okay. Uh, last but not least, I'm talking about reduction, is the ever-bouncing ball of fun who cuts this podcast with the skill of a highly trained chef. If highly trained chefs used audacity, it is. It's our editor, Ali Plum. Or if highly trained chefs used audition, even. This is the second time I've created you on that front. Audition. I should remember that, shouldn't I? Yeah. This week's Emperor Podcast, as ever, is brought to you by Beyond Two Souls, the PS3 game from Quantic Dream, a.k.a. the guys who brought you the award-winning Heavy Rain back in 2010. And if you're looking for the movie connection, Beyond Two Souls stars Ellen Page and Willem Dafoe. So there you go. The game is out now. It's available to buy. And for more details on the game, keep your ears peeled at the end of the podcast because Ali has got a big old spiel for you. Isn't that right, Ali? 
Yes, that is correct. Also, we had a competition last week which offered two readers a chance to win a copy of Beyond Two Souls for the PlayStation 3. The question was, which piece of classical music accompanies Willem Dafoe's demise, spoiler warning, in Platoon? It's on the poster. Uh, And the answer, of course, was Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings. And the winners are Scott Kelly and Neil Womack. That's right. Womack. I should have known. (laughs) Congratulations to them. This week's competition is the same prize. Two copies of Beyond Two Souls for two lucky winners. And this week's ridiculously easy question is, Beyond Two Souls star Ellen Page plays Kitty Pride in X-Men The Last Stand and X-Men Days of Future Past. But what's her superhero codename? Hang on, she has more than one, doesn't she? She does have more than one. The main one. The main one. The one she's known by in the X-Men movies. The big movies. one. Yes. Not, not the other one. Yes. Okay. The, the one that she's not known by in the X-Men movies. The one that's three syllables? Yes. Okay. Hang on, they're both three syllables. The first one, the the famous one, the big one. Yes. Okay. Okay. Hope that question doesn't phase you the way it phased Dan. <laughs> Answers, of course, with your name, your your answer, and your details to podcast at empireonline dot com, which is one of the uh, the forms through which you've been sending us uh, questions all week. So here we go. We have an email question, an email question. An email. I know. Can you imagine? Wow. From Gareth Little. Who says, they say a lot of movie plots struggle with an ending. Email questions are a lot longer than Twitter questions. Is there any film you feel is improved by switching it off before the final scene slash end? For me, Spielberg's AI should have ended with a little robot fella set at the bottom of the scene, bathed in the glow of the blue fairy. Not with all the other heart-wrenching stuff blatantly tacked on to the end. As Kubrick wanted. Anyway, yes, Helen. That's what I want to say. It's Kubrick, not Spielberg. I have been to the Kubrick exhibition. I've seen the sketches. That is Kubrick's ending, not Spielberg's ending. It's not... And I don't think it's actually that heart-wrenchingly or, or sentimental. I really, really like it. I think it's a really dark ending, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, it's really it's, twisted. It's really um, and, uh, and so I completely and utterly love it. That said, I do agree that Lincoln could have ended with the death of Lincoln. Or with him or just walking before. down the corridor yeah. when he or walks out. Because yeah. there's all that, oh, portent, portent. There is portent, been, and I think we, we all know yeah. what it's portenting. So uh, mm. that could have ended a little bit earlier. But honestly, AI, I, I, I know a lot of people make that criticism, but I, every single time, tend to try and punch it. True Romance is an example of a movie which I would have just snipped out the final slither at the end. I would have preferred a bleaker ending, as Quentin Tarantino, the writer of the film, would have also preferred, but uh, Tony Scott being the director wanted a different take and that's fine you know he is of course the director but if I were making it which I wasn't uh, that's what I would have done Monty Python the Holy Grail ends with the police arresting them <laughs> and part of me goes e- did you run out of ideas or are you just being funny I mean I don't want to judge the Goliaths of comedy that are Monty Python but you know I think they could have done something else the credits are amazing as we've discussed previously but Oh, I quite like it. It's because they couldn't afford the big battle scenes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you could make an argument, obviously, I'm sure a lot of people do, for Return of the King. Um, But the problem is, you absolutely need the last ending, I think, Mm. at the Grey Towers. Um, And in order for that to make sense, you kind of need at least three of the four before it. (laughs) I think I've said this before. I I, I love seeing them back back in Hobbiton, kind of, Mm. you know, sitting in the pub, feeling a bit out of place. But... A very satisfying ending would have been the old, you know, my friends, uh, you should kneel to no one, you know, the... Yes, it would have been, but I do think you need the Grey Towers. I think it's really important for Uh, the Tolkieniness of the whole thing. Okay. I think Superman should have ended with Lois Lane dying. You are harsh. Seriously, planet spinning. Even as a young man, I was going, well, that's 
bollocks yeah <laughs> i know i know he has a you know fortress of solitude and he can fly and has all that other kind of super stuff but really this is a step too far it's interesting uh, a lot of people think that spielberg has problems with with endings especially in the last 10 12 years uh so obviously ai although we talked about it that's a kubrick ending but for example war of the worlds could have ended nicely before he's somehow reunited with his son who somehow survived that alien onslaught and personally Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is much maligned um, the ending of that movie with the wedding between Indy and Marion every time I watch it and I don't watch it very often uh, I'm yelling at the TV when Shia LaBeouf picks up his hat at the end but I know <laughs> so that Harrison Ford has. yeah just end it or just if it's a, a cut of that movie without Shia LaBeouf I'd be quite happy. The phantom edit. The I, phantom edit. I, just know, I know exactly what you're saying. I know what's going to happen. I'm still furious. Yeah. I know that Harrison Ford takes a hat back off him and goes, uh, you're not ready for this hat yet, son, but I'm just yelling, you, know, you will never be ready for that hat because you're the worst <laughs> character in the history of movies. Now leave it alone. <laughs> leave it alone. Pick it up and give it to your dad. Yeah. yeah. Can, can, I, can I throw one Go in? Go to your room. Can I throw one in? Although this isn't just a final scene. This is... And I think, actually... I'm not the only person to identify this as the moment where the film goes completely wrong. Okay. But Alien Resurrection, the point where Ripley, Ripley says... <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, up until that, I, I, it's, it's, it's really fun. I enjoyed it. It's, it's the point where Ripley says, the Queen, I can feel her pain, and falls through a hole in the floor. Yeah, up until that yeah. point, it's a good fun... You know, you know, with an interesting take on the idea, and I like the idea of the she's not Ripley, and but there's a, she's a kind of clone alien DNA thing. And you know, up until that point, it's, I'm, I'm I'm with it. I like it. I like the Ron Perlman team mm-hmm. um, with uh, Winona Ryder, and then after that, it just it just descends into into kind of pseudo erotic farce. It's <laughs> <laughs> my favourite genre. <laughs> It's, it's courtroom battles, yeah. pseudo-erotic farce. Yeah. There's that bit where she's, you know, having a big orgy with him, and it's like, well, no. Wait, what? Just saying. Okay, I think we've answered that question as <laughs> to the very, the very fullest of our abilities. Uh, let's move on, uh, because uh, Halloween is upon us. It happens oh, before next week. Michael it? Myers. <gasps> no, not Michael Myers. Uh, the actual. Oh, I see. You know, yes, all Hallows okay. Eve, yes. all that nonsense. So we've got two scary questions. The first one's from at Ham of Grey via Twitter, who asks, uh, I'm in celebration that American Horror Story got its groove back with Coven. Oh, well done. So your favourite witch films? Is, is Wicker Man allowed? Mm. They're sort of the pagans. Yeah, pagans different from Wiccans. witches, aren't they? No. Yeah, no. It's not. I've got a safe one for this. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, unless you want to argue with me whether this they aren't. Sure. But the witches? Yes, I, I think that qualifies. <laughs> do, do you reckon? Yeah. Dan, what do you think? Uh, I would say that that is allowed. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, Angelica Houston for the win. I'm surprised there aren't more great witch movies, to be honest. And can we throw Witchfinder General in here? Yes. Uh, we should absolutely throw that one. I love that film. Let's not. I forgot f- about it. I love it. Yeah. That's that's fantastic. You're talking about The Wicker Man. I mean, that's very yeah. much of a piece, I guess. Yeah, it's it is. Yeah, a yeah, yeah. Piece. Good double bill. Um, good double bill. A very good double bill, yeah. actually. But which is a formidable opponent. Like, yeah. They've got they're evil. They can conjure up things. They're very hard to kill. Uh, as Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters, uh, proved. <laughs> uh, that's not a great witch movie. Um, I'm going to roll out a couple very, very quickly. I think The Conjuring this year was a very, very good witch movie. Um, the Blair Witch Project, clearly. It's not really a, a very witch movie, is it? Of course it's a witch movie. It's, you never see the witch with the hairy arms. <laughs> yeah, the hairy arms and the broomstick <laughs> flying around. <laughs> what of the better witch was Maggie Smith as uh, what's her face from Harry Potter 
Uh, I would totally watch that. I can believe it as well. I think she's got a dark side. What is her name from Harry Potter? <laughs> Professor McGonagall. That's the one. That's it. Uh, I'm going to throw a shout out to a little known uh, witch movie from about 1982. Uh, it's called, <laughs> believe it or not, The Witch. Uh, also known in this country, I believe, as Superstition. That's certainly the title I first watched it under. And that's a very, very creepy haunted house movie. Bitch lucky if you watch it these days, but very, very good if you check it out. And there's also, of course, the Witches of Eastwick, which we should probably mention. Less maybe with the witchcraft and more with the devilry. Um, But Jack Nicholson as a devil, has there ever been better casting? I don't think so. Are you okay, Chris? Is he on the 666 list? Hocus Pocus (laughs) is a bit more for, you know, the tiny little, tiny problem children. Um, And then, you know, if you're a teenager, it's got to be the craft in it. It's got to be the craft. Oh, the craft. Yeah, it's mm. got to be. Actually, do you know what's the, what's that boy version of the craft that came out a few years ago? And it's the dumbest movie I've ever seen. The daft. No, it was it was really deeply stupid. I saw it on a Friday night and laughed the whole way through. I'm going to have to look it up. That's going to annoy me. Suspiria. Yeah. Suspiria. Forgot to mention Suspiria, which is also okay. amazing. Practical Magic. Excellent. Also, also a genius movie. Clearly, now we're being facetious now but uh, there are a number of the characters we mentioned from the films are on our 666 list the 666 greatest horror movie characters of all time we spoke about it last week we thought it would be up by Tuesday it hasn't been because it's enormous but it will be up today Friday October 25th just in time for Halloween it is the most ambitious undertaking in Empire Lines history so please do go and check it out and see who we and you guys think are the 666 greatest horror movie characters of all time Do the wicked, does the Wicked Witch of the West count as a horror movie character? No Boo She should she's great that was the covenant I was thinking of it's the uh, mind numbingly dull uh, and dumb story about uh, four ridiculously hot male witches who the more they use their powers the faster they age Ooh. so it's like the male charmed but not really yes okay, uh, okay so the next question is from at Wesley Etienne who asks what horror films have scared you more after you've watched them than during The Covenant Helen <laughs> <laughs> oh I get scared just remembering how bad it was um, I would say for me uh, 28 Days Later which uh, just every so often I'll wake up in the early hours of the morning and be scared that there are people you know going crazy down the street where do you live? New Cross. Yeah, well. <laughs> there probably are people going crazy. <laughs> I believe 28 Days Later was based on New Cross. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, Shaun of the Dead was filmed there, so close enough. In New Cross? Mm-hmm. The Winchester was in New Cross. My shout for that would be Ringu. Ooh, scary. Yeah, which actually, uh, I mean, bearing in mind, so what, I'm, I'm, I'm 39 now and I can't remember when it came out, so I wasn't like, you know, a kid when I saw it or anything. But I actually was genuinely afraid of the dark for about a year after I saw that film. I couldn't walk around my own home without switching lights on first. Really? And and then it wore off, and now I'm fine. It's okay. <laughs> you okay? I'm, I can walk in the dark whenever I like now. So if we're suddenly plunged into darkness, you'll be okay? I'll be absolutely fine if, if sudden darkness descends upon me. <laughs> okay. Uh, for me, recently, uh, I was freaked out. Well, when I saw, and I'm going to, yes, I'm going to mention Event Horizon again. Uh, when I saw Event God. Horizon uh, for the first time, my one of my flatmates and I, we were at uni at the time, uh, we were so traumatized by it that it haunted our dreams for about two weeks afterwards. And then a, a, a friend of mine who I shared a flat with at the time uh, created a comic book, an ongoing comic book called The Continuing Adventures of Dr. Uh, Weir and Captain Miller in Hell. Which uh, which, was, which was amazing, but what he'd also do is that he would um, he would cut out pictures of Sam Neill as Doctor Weir and scratch out the eyes, and then just blue tack them into locations around our house. And so you'd lift up the toilet, and there would. 
be Dr. Weir going with a little speech bubble coming out of his face going, hello, Chris, I've been waiting for you. And it was just it was a, interesting. He'd also do Roman Polanski. Oh, don't do that. So you'd have voice. Roman Polanski going, hello, Chris, hello, I've been waiting. Um, yeah, so that was always fun to do. I can't remember the name of the film that truly plagued my uh, my teenage years, but it was called, I think, something called like The Catcher. But there was a moment in it. It's a baseball horror movie. You know, there are so many. <laughs> and it had a psychopathic uh, baseball uh, who stuffed one of the characters, one of the goodens, into a massive washing machine drum and then switched it on. Oh. And that whole idea of somebody just picking you up lobbing you inside a giant kind of huge thing and just pressing go was horrible the rest of the stuff he did was basically with baseball bats but amazingly and I'm sorry if I'm spoiling this movie I can't remember the name of the person survives the washing machine <laughs> and then gets out and that's what haunted me they but, have frizzy hair <laughs> ho- ho- horrible horrible little bobbles on their skin uh, are they, are they, have they shrunk <laughs> yeah. he looked terrible but he smelled great I think it's safe to say that the picture if that is indeed his name is not on the 666 list but maybe he should be. Maybe. It's called The Catcher. I was right. Anyway, Karen. The Catcher. Who directed it? The Catcher was directed by two people, Guy Crawford and Yvette Hoffman. It was produced by Guy Crawford and Yvette Hoffman. It was written by Guy Crawford and Yvette Hoffman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 77 minutes of genius there. Did it star Guy Crawford and Yvette Hoffman? Uh, no, it starred Joe Estevez. Is that one of Martin Sheen's sons? He's the <laughs> uncle of Emilio. Okay. Okay, the last question is from at Mr. Lucian, who asked, What actor slash director would you like to see guest host a podcast when Chris is on holiday in the future? No offense, Helen, who normally guest hosts the podcast. I do have some suggestions, though. If I'm away as well, and Ali's away, and, and all then are... Phil guest hosted when you were away. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so if, it, if it, not for all of those, obviously that's the A list, but like the B list. <laughs> the A list, thank you, yeah. <laughs> but the B list for me would be uh, Tom Hiddleston who we talked to last week. He can do impressions. He can probably do you. And he's very funny and charming, so that'd be good. Benedict Cumberbatch. I think our our ratings would go through the roof um, because anybody would basically listen to him read the phone book. And I think the absolute pinnacle has got to be Brian Blessed. Now, that is a podcast that you would listen to. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Hello! I still can't imagine. No? Brian Blessed. Oh, Brian Cranston. Sorry. (laughs) That was my Walter White impression. He'd be awesome, actually, as well. He would. Aaron Paul could do it. Aaron Paul could do it, bitches. Yeah, he'd just get my script, but just add the word bitch to everything. What's your favourite bitch movie? (laughs) Yeah. Dan, who would you like to see host the podcast? Oliver Stone. Okay. I think, you know, he'd he'd, he'd blow it open. Three hours of conspiracy ranting. I think think that'd be be good. Oliver Stone, he, he talks the talk. He talks a good talk, and he talks it well. Sadly, Dan, Oliver Stone will never guest host a podcast. They won't let him. Forgot about the mm. military industrial media complex. No. Uh, Ali, who should guest host a podcast? I want to say Quentin Tarantino, but in reality, I actually want the stand up comedian and notorious droll Stephen Wright, the host of K Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s. That incredibly dry. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s weekend. It's like bu- bubblegum yeah. favorite Steelers <clears throat> wheel. Uh, I'd like <laughs> I'd like him to host the podcast for a little while, uh, and I'd also like uh, Robin Williams. I would like to add Werner Herzog. Oh, that'd be amazing. Because Werner Herzog could say anything, anything he likes, and it would it would just make me happy. You know, even if he's talking about the cold indifference of nature and and you know the uh, the inevitable deaths of us all, I just like yeah, he's right. He's so right. 
okay, let's just fire ourselves and get these people in. Yeah. We've got to make this happen. Okay, so that's it for your questions this week. If you have any questions for us next week, uh, please send them in. We're on Twitter as at Emperor Magazine. Use the hashtag Emperor Podcast. We're on Facebook as Emperor Magazine. You can email us as well, podcast at empireonline.com. Or you can do what Gio Compare does and hire two planes to fly across the sky as well. Okay, time for our first interview of the pod with two of the leading lights of British movie making between them, Shane Meadows as a writer-director and Mark Herbert, one of the driving forces behind Warp Films, have produced some of the finest British films over the last 10 years or 10 to 15 years really and they reteamed earlier this year on the brilliant Stone Roses documentary Made of Stone it's coming out now on DVD and Blu-ray and they came at the pod booth to talk to Phil and Dan we're delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by um, the director of This Is England Dead Man's Shoes now Made of Stone Shane Meadows and also the man I've just been asked to describe as the boss man at Warp Films, <laughs> Mark Herbert. Welcome, guys. Hi, you? All right. How are you? Very well. Thank you very much. We were just thinking that our first ever podcast guest, which was over a year ago, was Paddy Considine. Was he? Yeah. He sat here and he talked to us about his his collection of Rocky memorabilia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Has he showed it to you? Yeah, I've been to his house. He's got he's got these um, cabinets in his house. These amazing sort of display cabinets. That um, I mean it. it the Rocky one's incredible, but he, he also, I can remember it first sort of started when, when I met him at college, his collection of Star Wars um, stuff, that sort of, which obviously was quite a common one, but then he got into dolls. I think he bought some Beatles dolls when we were in London once, and, uh, yeah, it's like, it's, it's incredible, and it's this sort of, you know, he was always like it with music, with everything. If he sort of got into something, he had to have every possible variation going. Mm-hmm. So there's probably a Boz Eyed Apollo Creed in there, you know, that was one of. And he's got, yeah, he, he, it's insane. And uh, But obviously, at the same time, it's sort of exquisite. I kind of, um, I've never been a collector in that way, but yeah, Paddy's obsessed with it. We are talking about the DVD and Blu-ray release of Made of Stone. Yeah, yeah. So it gives us an opportunity to say, you know, what has the journey been like for you since the film came out? Because it came out, I think, a couple of days before they they played a big gig at Finsbury Park, That's which I know right. you went to. You did a DVD commentary around the same time, didn't you? And yeah. And so it's been a few months that must have been filled with people coming up and and wanting to talk to you about the roses. And has it been has it been a ride, a journey so far? Yeah, I mean, I made a promise to myself that you know after the film sort of came out, and we'd I think Finsbury Park was was kind of quite monumental for both me and Mark because a lot of the time when we were at shows at gigs and things like that you've got responsibilities of filming and and so although there's there's moments and you know I never really got to sit and and watch or be part of the audience or be a fan so hmm. I whacked a, uh, a Rennie hat on at Finsbury Park and, uh, <laughs> and we went into yeah, the crowd we, we went, went into the crowd and just went and watched it as fans wow. um, so that was this kind of really beautiful defining moment that although I'd seen them 15 maybe 20 times over the course of making the documentary I'd never as a fan been and stood with the people without thinking mm. I wonder if someone's mm. filming this or doing that um, so that was that was magic um, and then you know like I say I, I made a promise to myself and my family that I would have for the first time really since I started making films I'd have a break um, and uh from being someone that doesn't like holidays and all of that kind of thing, I've had like four family holidays this year with my kids and my wife, and and sort of appreciated the pleasures of the east coast of England and <laughs> been out crabbing and all sorts. So, wow. so weirdly, the roses, apart from like you know working on the you know the extras and things for the DVD, um, it, I've had a quite a sort of uh, a sabbatical, mm. if you like. So much of your work, Shane, draws on your youth. It seems it's a- made, even made a stone. Really, it, you know, it draws on your youth. 
I mean, is there anything left to draw on? <laughs> yeah. Have, we, you, have you reached the end of that phase yet? Or, or is it not a phase? Is it, is it your, your, your whole... You know, uh, when you go to things like Summerstown and, and films like that, they kind of don't necessarily draw on things specific. And then you get to This Is England, which mm. obviously appears because it, the seed of that was something very specific in my own life. I think I think what I've learnt is that I'm, I'm a storyteller, you know, and, and so, you know, I'm, I've just made a a pop video for Jake Bug. I've made a, a documentary now, feature length. I've made a 30-minute documentary about my friend who's a musician. Mm. I've made feature films that are full length. I've made Summerstown 68 minutes. I've made 80 or 90 short films that range from a minute to 30. So in a way, I'm, you know, the main draw for me is is obviously stories and people and, and the length of... Because I you know, sometimes you get people on my forums you know, coming on my website and you know, when are we going to get a feature film? Have you stopped making them? You know, I was disappointed. Yeah. Rather than seeing my work as a chance to visit characters in whatever form. Um, and, my, you know, obviously me growing up, something about that period was so visceral. The, the nature of hanging around with small-time crooks, uh, growing up as a kid in a, in a you know, working-class area, seeing people, a spirit, there was something about the spirit of growing up in your Toxter at that time yeah. um, that, that made a massive impact. And although I'm running out of stories from that specific period, period in time it's amazing how when the roses thing came up there's something about that period where i'm transitioning between being a pretty crap small-time crook and an artist mm. and i suppose there's something about that combination of someone that's viewing you know just mm. the, the genius of small-time crookery i used to think just <laughs> you know I, I remember like the some of the the crimes that went on and there was such a low level with such low like uh, financial gain but with such effort put in yeah. that you sort of think do a bank job you know like trying <laughs> to get a lawnmower and putting all that effort in to get a lawnmower out of there with all these trust exercises um, those those people I was infatuated by them but I also mm. wasn't one of them but I was growing up within it yeah. so you'd got someone that ultimately was going to become a filmmaker but didn't know it mm. um, and uh, you know so that were probably always like the Stone Roses thing happened um, and it took me back to being 16 or 17 again when you know now if I want to go to somewhere I can pretty much probably get myself a ticket yeah. you know you you know, you ring your agent and go oh, do we know anyone that does this or does that and I'll take friends to gigs and but back then I didn't not only have nothing you know those mm. things were like because it is that classic thing of money to money that once you're sort of in this game you can go to these things but back in yeah. those days mm. so one of my sad uh, saddest memories and biggest regrets was not taking the opportunity to go to Spike Island so again it reawakened mm. that part of myself where I was still on the outside of that window you know and whereas now you can sort of go to all these big bashes smoke salmon's very passe <laughs> um, <laughs> talking about future ambitions what are your ambitions for for warp films going going forward i know that you you guys are talking about projects you, yes. you mentioned tom tommy simpson yep. biopic maybe talk about that and and other things that you'd like yeah it's it's, it's actually quite top because yesterday all the london obviously we've got an office in sheffield office in london and um all the london crew came we, we have a monthly meeting and we literally have gone because it's the 10th anniversary last year we kind of like what, what's next for the next 10 years and you know, and I think one of the perceptions, in fact, somebody came up with the best ever. He said, Look, how can you describe what we do? And somebody said, You know, no, we make the blue mess. That <laughs> was one thing. It's, like, it's, it's always got to be about quality. So, yeah, but at the same time, you know, I've, I'm amazed at, you know, like being like this, the shared experience of cinema was always a big thing for me, but I'm now finding that shared experience can happen on TV, you know, yeah. television, you know, on Monday morning, the last at Breaking Bad. I was there with we, we shut the office down in Sheffield mm. till eleven o'clock, and straight afterwards I spoke to my brother in Sydney, 
Australia who just watched the same and there is a I felt more connected almost on that so for me yeah. it's looking at you know I, I think TV is a, a massive ambition for Warp you know we've just done mm. Southcliffe and obviously this is England and authored TV I think that there's a, a market for that and what Shane just described about you know I've, we optioned off we've optioned a family film you know I've got three kids and they're you know, I can't really show them Snowtown, and uh, it's got yeah. a kangaroo. In it. It's got a kangaroo in it. Yeah, it's got a kangaroo that gets absolutely mutilated. Yeah. Um, you know, in fact, I've, I went. You know, I think I think last last year we had every film that we did was an animal got killed in it, and um, <laughs> but so you know, so I've optioned. A, you know, I've, you know, so we optioned a kids book, which is a fantastic book called Wild Boy, which is a, you know just out and. But the the hero, the wild boy, is, is a sort of a boy covered in hair who becomes this incredible detective, and and he's just got powers of observation. But he's not your obvious. He's not a your obvious like blue eyed, <laughs> blonde haired hero. Is a boy covered in hair who, <laughs> you know. But Harry it's a Potter. warp, yeah, and it's an Harry absolutely Potter. fantastic. <laughs> fantastic story it's like literally Sherlock Holmes meets that's great I'll use that for the pitch <laughs> uh, but you know I guess what word Louis now is just trying to make bigger for, you know try to you know but not lose that sense of what warp is so it's kind of you know the Tommy Simpson film it'll be a big budget and but there's something in Tommy as a person that feels both warp and feels both Shane you do know you know what I mean? yes. so we're not gonna yeah we you know if we did a romantic comedy it wouldn't be if we did one and we've got a few on the still state, be a dead mouse yeah, there'd be, yeah, be some animal kills yeah. somewhere <laughs> so would Tommy Simpson be a, a project for you Shane or yeah we, a, as a director or yeah I mean I, I kind of bought it to Mark um, as a something a bit like when I saw the Charles Bradley documentary sometimes things uh, kind of put you back in your seat and the thing about the Charles Bradley documentary was it was like there was nothing to do the film was a wonderful film in itself and did everything it needed to do and it wasn't that the Tommy documentary wasn't a great documentary but as a film sort of leapt out uh, you know I got to the sort of end of that because for me there's a sort of there's a, a real feel of a sort of raging bull character mm. in there someone that's in control of their own destruction in a way mm. um, and um, you know some you know so the the Tommy Simpson story sort of jumped out at me, and it turned out he's from North Nottinghamshire, and um, you know, and and th there's there's my humour in there of this guy that you know is basically a, from a mining town, and a you know man that worked on the mine's son goes over to Paris, tries to learn French immediately, and is doing all of his early interviews in French as best he can. He's because mm. he so he's kind of so they think he, because he's done that, people don't even people now don't go to France and try and speak French. They're egg and chips, you know, it's <laughs> um, with a French accent. Whereas he, that, so they thought he was like an English gentleman. They thought, you know, this guy, he's been here three days and he's trying to do his, so he's obviously a gent. So they had him doing shoots in bowler hats and sitting in jags and all of that. And so, you know, so you're going through this documentary. So I was really taken with him as a person because there was some, you know, massively three-dimensional kind of character with a bit of devil in him, you know. And meets a, an English woman out there, gets my, you know, is wearing Ray Bands and all that, but he's ultimately from where, you know, me and Mark are from. Mm. And then when you get to the latter part of the documentary and you sort of see that sort of uh, sport, you know, that's ridiculously competitive sporting mentality becoming his undoing uh, in, you know, obviously the hardest race in the world, and he ends up pretty much suffocating to death on a mountain and they've got news footage from it where you see this the thing that made me want to make a film if there was a single image that made me want to make a film was the few seconds where he because he keeps falling off his bike on Mount Von 2 
and and he keeps trying to get back on it and the crowd are helping him and they're doing their thing when they're pushing him up the hill and there's one bit where he comes off the bike and he's not on it anymore but his legs are still going round as if he's pedaling oh. and when I saw that I went I have to make a film about this wow. it was just like it, you know and I just kind of thought no one's going to put Shane and Mark Warp together with the Tour de France but then when you watch that and you think mm. about Raging Bull and you think about mm. the kind of and making it personal you know it's not going to be one of these that's like you know in this tour and when he won the Worlds and all of this and the other it's going to be about that period in his life it's a couple of things to end with one I hope you can fill us in on the future of This Is England of course um, and also since I think we, we last spoke to you um, Bob Hoskins announced his retirement yeah. and I don't think anyone on the podcast has, has kind of done a tribute or talked about Bob's impact and I know he's incredibly important in your career so maybe you could sort of address those two things yeah I'm, I mean well in, in terms of uh, Bob I mean he obviously came into my life at a massively pivotal moment because a lot of people think oh you've made small time and um, you know you, so you've made a 60 minute film but it, to put it into context what I'd done was uh, hire a van from rent a car a white van when I did small time, um, hire a camera and get mate to boom operate and get six people who live up the road and make a film. When when I made twenty four seven with Bob, that was like say two grand small time. When I made that with Bob, there was a one and a half million pound budget. Uh, when I walked onto set, there was people sawing bits of wood in the back of van, building sets, but you know, caravans, people staying in. Car- the the difference was was gigantic. And Bob, mm. for me put his arm around me at a very early stage could see a young version of himself in me because obviously he'd come from a very similar background tried it at college you know and all of that sort of thing and then actually forged his own way in it and he kind of there's people different people out there in our world as there is in everything and there's those that um you know want our world to be a secret and want you to you know want it to be hard and then there's people that kind of do everything that they can to make it the best it can be and so th- there was two things that he did one was obviously by agreeing to do the film with me and doing it for virtually nothing it meant that because he was in it it meant I got to work with the same creative final cut freedom I'd had on all my shorts uh, and he wouldn't he almost wouldn't make the film unless I had that control because he'd seen something in my short films I think that he really loved and you know and he must have seen it time and time again where a director gets on a bigger budget thing and gets nailed he will have seen that many times in his life the most special thing about him throughout that whole process was that he wasn't a star it was all about could he get down to the level could he be accepted in the group because there was a real knit amongst the people that were on it who were from Nottingham Mm. and it wasn't like you know can these people you know, come and knock on my door I'll be ready in 20 minutes I'm just ringing LA he went into it so deep and so and became such a big part of it and earned everyone's respect rather than the other way around so that was incredibly special and then when I went off and toured the world he was seeing this, and, and I learnt this from him that basically you can only go on Con, you know, you go on Concord, you do these things once or the first time you fly, it's special and the only way it ever becomes special again is when you see somebody else doing it so when I took Thomas to Goose with Mark to Rome mm. and Tomo got a stand innovation at Rome, it's not <laughs> exactly the same as it happening to you but it's about as close as it gets when you see yeah. and so Bob when we went to because uh, on my contract that I signed, obviously all my travels economy and he would never go anywhere if they put him in first class or put him in anything, he would never go unless I was allowed with him um, so he almost, you know, I think he just took great joy in watching me yeah. seeing a steak cut next to myself on my way to New York, going, they're flambéing it, Bob, right here, <laughs> you know. And um, and this is England. So yeah, so this is England. Um, is 
we've got a two-horse race run at the moment. Tommy Simpson's yeah right out in front because a script's been written. Is it then- financed? No, I mean, like anything, we've got... We, we work with Film 4 really closely and we've got the cornerstone of finance for both. But the fi- I don't think the finance will be tricky. It's just about getting it right. Mm. And when Shane goes, this is the one I want to... This is the story I want to tell next. Yeah, because we're going to do some... We'll do. We're doing some impro uh, sessions in January for... Because the, the Tommy Simpson one, as a, as a biopic, is needs a, a script and, and we'll work off a script. Obviously, I'll do what I do when I get there, but that's being developed as a script with uh, Billy Ivory and we're on the second draft so that in terms of development so far is way ahead but then uh, over the course of January I'm going to sit with the actors and we're going to you know Stephen Graham and Vicky McClure and you know Joe and Shimmy and all all the main cast are going to sit down in a room I've got the story of This Is England Night written in my head and I'm going to start to throw the ideas around and that could then completely bring them to a level place where This Is England just may happen first. Um, There may be an announcement uh, pretty soon because me and Mark were going to Deanard. It's two years to the day that Ian Brown rang me and said, do you want to make the Stone Roses film? We were going to the same festival so when I'm in that that van and I'm talking about, you know... Basically, I got a phone call. It's literally we're going to the same festival today. This afternoon. Amazing. And whenever, yeah. whenever oh, we go, so there, glad to be talking about it's it. A really, it's yeah. a really, it's wow. an amazing. We've had this real affinity with this festival in that when we were doing Dead Man's Shoes, we went there for the first time when we were editing it, and during this festival, kind of came up with having a little bit of space from the edit help us think about what the ending and the way to structure it, and we came up with a title at Dinard. Mm. We went there the year after, and it won the f- prize. And we've just been there every year. And it's it's a good time of year because we literally go there and go, what's 2014? So like you know, literally yeah. we're going to get on Eurostar in a few hours and go, right, Shane, like, what we're we yeah, doing? We'll what we doing back, next we'll year? We'll probably come back knowing, and then probably in a week because I'll sit here now and say it won't be till January, but I could come back, you know, something about that festival, you know, being by the old splashy water, and you know, there's something mm. about that place, seeing the statue of Hitchcock there with the birds on his shoulders. Something mm. happens when we go there. Sometimes we go with two ideas and come back with a brand new one, and everyone yeah. goes, why have you done that to us? You know, <laughs> and sometimes we we may just come back next week and go yeah this, this is, is happening next. and we'll announce it so but it, it will uh, something special happens and we've not done it on Eurostar before so uh, yeah. you travel free I guess no outrageous no seriously yeah. outrageous yeah it's not fair at all is it after what you've done for them this evil <laughs> evil found <laughs> hey thank you so much for coming and talking to us no Mark problem. and Shane it's been a Real pleasure. pleasure thank you yeah. great stuff cheers, cheers guys cheers <laughs> how was it then I love about Shane is as you could tell from listening to that is you ask him a question and he's just whoosh, he's off yeah we've been trying to get him on the podcast for a while but he yeah. obviously doesn't live in London so it's yeah. a bit bit tricky but glad we got him in at the last, end at last fantastic okay time for some lovely movie news lovely lovely movie news yeah Tom Hiddleston could do that link could he could he I think he probably could yeah he yeah. could and the voice of Owen Wilson <laughs> I can try it okay now it's time for some no. love no <laughs> Was that, your that was Brian one Blessing? of the Muppets. Lovely movie news, man. No, no, no. no. It's getting worse, <laughs> if anything. Man, no. Whoa, whoa. Okay. Uh, anyway, so who's first? We got news this week, didn't we? That Tim Burton could be directing Beetlejuice two. Ooh. Do you remember Beetlejuice? Who remembers Beetlejuice? I do. And this is a Halloween-y kind of one, isn't it? He's on the 666 list. Yeah, well, um, so this, yeah, I mean, this has been talked about for years. This is one of those kind of, you know, 
will they do this sequel or won't they do this sequel? Uh, so it's been bubbling along for quite a while. But now, uh, Dark Shadow Seth Graham Smith. Oh, um, no. Oh, yes. Oh, no. Abraham Lincoln Vampire. I was so excited about this. Just, just bear with me. Bear with me. Come on. He's working on a new draft. No. Burton was only going to produce. But now he's saying he could step in to direct. My question here is, I, I like the idea in, in, in theory. I enjoy Beetlejuice. I love Beetlejuice. It was a mm. big, big film of my teenage years. Can ghosts grow old? But Beetlejuice looked very different from Michael Keaton then. So actually, and, and sort of older and weirder. Right. So actually, you can probably make Michael Keaton now look like that. So he'd still look like that. But what about, so think? do you think there'd yeah, be no, so. no Alec Baldwin and no Gina Davis then? I, I don't not, think yeah. so, no. Right, so they're not there. So it's going to be Beetlejuice in an entirely new scenario. I would imagine. Is that, is that what they're going for? Yeah, I'd like to see Winona Ryder's character come back. I would but too. But you could absolutely do it without Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis. Okay. I would think. Okay. Maybe a cameo yeah. here and there. But yeah, yeah I mean, it's good. I mean I'm mean, i interested by his next film, Big Eyes, which yes. is finished. Yes, which does uh, not involve uh, Seth Graham uh, Smith, to my knowledge. No, and, it, and, and I, I don't think it involves people with big big black hairdos and spindly spindly trees it doesn't it's more of a drama yes it this is one. Christoph yes, Waltz yes. and Amy Adams and yeah Amy Adams is the painter Margaret Keane is it mm-hmm. the sequel to Big Fish it is not no even though I can see you're a little bit confused because one of the words in the title is the same <laughs> uh, that's fine but no it's not it's, it's entirely different it's just that one of the words in the title is the same and that happens occasionally certain filmmakers have titles which have the same words in them Okay, and, and that was not, uh, and then not sequels. That was patronising with Dan Joel, and that was a masterclass. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. But yeah, so yeah, is everyone excited by Beetlejuice too? Don't you mean is everyone excited by Beetlejuice? You are, aren't you? Yes, you are. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Dan. That's uh, right. Yeah, I'm excited about it. And then you mentioned Seth Graham Smith's name, and then all my excitement just flew out the window. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, the, the man is responsible I, I, I think, well, I've said this before in a podcast I think he's a one trick pony and the pony left town a long time ago but that being said I'm prepared to give this a chance uh, so <laughs> uh, Helen what do you got? I have two stories today both involving hunky men the Hooray! first one is good news for all you fans of bondage bondage and badly written novels it is Fifty Shades of Grey news it still oh. rolls on we had Charlie Hunnam of course uh, drop out and now we have Jamie Dornan everybody's favourite sexy TV psychopath of last year signing on to play Christian Grey he was of course the star of The Fall and I know that a lot of people seem to, to quite like him in that show and, and frankly the qualities necessary to play a psychopath are probably similar to the qualities <laughs> necessary to play Christian, Christian Grey so I think it's actually not bad casting but he has been cast so that is uh, good news for mm. that film which is back on track that's interesting though isn't it mm. so he, apparently he was linked with the role he before was, Charlie yes. Hunnam, so he was, he was he was in, and then he was out again. Then he was in again. Then he was out again. In stop. out, in out, in out, in out. That's sounds to me like he's perfect for this role. <laughs> it rather does. In in weirder casting news, and I genuinely I can't get my head around this. This is genius. Yeah, Tom Hardy hmm. has signed on to play the lead in Rocket Man, and Rocket Man is the film biography, the slightly fantastical film biography of. Elton John. So Tom Hardy. Oh come on, Hardy's a chameleon. Is playing Elton. Do- no, he is a he's chameleon. Not, he's, a chameleon. He's, he's he's a very gifted actor. I have I have every faith in his he ability can do anything, to to anything. win me around to this. I am just having real trouble seeing this. I asked our Twitter followers to come up with a series of Bane inflected Elton John songs under the hashtag 
wait for it, this is good, Bane Elton John songs. And we had Mitch Benn, who's one of the comedians who's part of the Now Show on Radio 4, but his suggestion for a title for a uh, yeah. Bane Elton John song was... <laughs> Other ones included... Sorry seems to be the hardest word in this ridiculous mask. I'm still standing on Batman's throat. Baney in the Jets. Killer Croc Adal Rock. Don't go breaking my back. I'd like to see Tom Hardy play this with the Bane mask and a horrible wig. That's it. That's all I need to see from this. Ali, what do you got? I've got quite a few here. Uh, three, to be precise. What? Uh, this three. news emerged uh, late last week, so we couldn't make it into last week's podcast, but just to kind of mention it, Josh Brolin has been earmarked for a role in Jurassic World which at one point was known as Jurassic Park 4. Of course, his father was in Westworld. It all comes together. Mm. Uh, now, other people who've been cast include uh, Iron Man 3's uh, Cheeky Young and Ty Simpkins, and uh, a guy I don't know, uh, the Kings of Summer's Nick Robinson. They're, they're both locked in. With the BBC's political editor, Nick Robinson, the guy with the glasses and the baldy head. I'm going to go ahead and say no. Oh. Mm. Okay. Sometimes, Chris, two different people... <laughs> have the same name. I know it can be a bit confusing, but sometimes it does happen. Dan, 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 I'm going to have to stop you there. Okay, now <laughs> there is no news on whether Josh Brolin will be a particular character, it's just that he's linked to a role and I, after interviewing him the other day for the upcoming Labour Day, such a big fan of his, uh, and not that I especially, uh, hopefully he won't be shooting a dog in this one, uh, but he's... <laughs> He's a real screen presence, and I wish I could see him more. Like he, he's a real joy, and he was fantastic. Dare I say, in Men in Black Three, whatever you say about that film, he was yes. really good in it. I still can't quite get my head around this one. Avatar Stephen Lang, yes, who played Colonel Miles Quaritch, yes. Now, if you haven't seen Avatar, you're probably one of the three <laughs> remaining people who haven't. But I am going to spoil it for you now. Okay, are you ready? His character dies at the end of Avatar because he was a badan. Yep. Yeah, he gets a... Do we see him die? We do. do we actually see him yeah. die? Yes, we do. I'm trying to remember it. Yes. He's in the he's in the mech suit at the time, though, yeah. so maybe it, there'll be some it, kind it's of... It's an arrow, isn't it? Oh, that's yeah. it. The arrow goes, yeah. So he is, he's done a death, uh, but that hasn't stopped him from emerging in the scripts for Avatar 2, 3, and 4. He's been confirmed to appear in all three of those movies, those planned sequels, by James Cameron himself. This is what... Uh, Cameron said Stephen was so memorable in the first film we're privileged to have him back I'm not going to say exactly how we're bringing him back but it's a science fiction story after all his character will evolve into really unexpected places across the arc of our new three film saga I really look forward to working with such a gifted actor who's become a good friend yeah um, cloning I guess I don't know I mean or even just you know some kind of cyborgy type you know we we know for example that the technology existed in the first film potentially if he could afford it for your man to get his leg for jake to get his legs back so presumably they can fix quite a lot of physical damage in this universe so theoretically somebody finds him recently dead in that mech suit or the mech suit itself if it hadn't sustained enough damage could somehow try and you know set out a homing signal and get back to base or something like that and then potentially he could be or maybe, fixed or cyborgified or something. Or maybe he's like Monty Python. I'm not dead. I'm feeling better. <laughs> I'm all right now. Uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of happy about this one. I know there's been a massive Avatar backlash. 
uh, since the movie came out and became the biggest movie of all time by a country mile. But um, I think for a lot of people, Quaritch was their favourite character because he had a real drive. He was a, a villain you could give behind. I'd be quite happy to see him coming back. But the fact that he's going to survive two, three, and four, where's the drama? Where's the parallel from that? Uh, Cameron's already called him in that same uh, statement the Darth Vader of the series. So that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Does that that's mean he's going to turn good at some point? Or that's a clue. Isn't it? Is? I think he come. I think he's. I think he's going to be like a Navi. A Navi. Yeah. Because mm. in the same way that that Jake could walk when yes. he was in that Avatar form, the film's called Avatar after all. Maybe Quaritch survives in a kind of you know extremely crippled state, and um, they he somehow comes back as a Navi and becomes like Ooh, a baddie Navi. A baddie mm. Navi. It's an intriguing idea. I mean, he couldn't go the same route, presumably, through Mother Iwa, who would pro- presumably not, you yeah, know... The, the mm. firewall would, would reject yeah, him. Yeah, the firewall would yeah. reject him. Mm. But if he went through the human route, mm. I guess... I mean, these Maybe. are all words you're saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that's great. I don't know yeah. what I'm saying. I, I can't, I, I, will he play a tree? Who knows? Uh, so, Sir Ben Kingsley, this is my final piece of news, has hinted at a secret Marvel project. But I think, considering who we have in the room, we might be able to guess what it is. This is what he had to say... This is what you had to say. <laughs> this is what you had to say. They're just words. They're just words. This is what you had to say to the Belfast Telegraph. Uh, a, a fine publication. A fine paper. Amazing. An August journal. That's yes. where all my movie news come from. Come from? What the hell is wrong with my mouth? <laughs> right, here's his quote in full. It's a secret Marvel project. <laughs> I'm not allowed to say anymore. You're going to have to wait and see. It was with many members of the crew that were involved in Iron Man 3. It was lovely to see them again. It's great to be with this wonderful family. Now. Now then, now then. We don't want to necessarily... There are going to be some people who haven't watched Iron Man 3, but let it be said that this sounds like a one-shot of his character going off into another world. I doubt they're going to be doing an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. version set in Croydon, but this will be, in my mind, a small one-shot for Iron Man 3, a la something funny happened on the way to Thor's Hammer, or more recently, Peggy Carter in Agent Carter. I love the sound of Ben Kingsley's character coming back, because I loved him. I laughed my arse off. We had a deleted scene on Empire Online recently, which showed all sorts of stuff that left was left on the cutting room floor, and I can see how Marvel are like, yes, we've got more to do with this guy. Very interesting. Uh, what would Owen Wilson think about that one? Uh, well, I think it's very interesting. Stop it, Helen. What's happening, Chris? I don't, I don't know. Just, Stop him, I have work. no power over him. Have it. You uh, one thing I will mention before we move on is the London Screenwriters Festival, which takes place this weekend. Uh, from today, Friday, October 25th, to Sunday, October 27th. That is at the Regent School of Drama. So I believe tickets are still available, so you can go on the website, londonscreenwritersfestival.com, and check out availability. Go down, there's loads of great special guests. Joe Esterhaus is coming in. Uh, he's our guest of honour, but there's other great people as well, including the, the Gibbons brothers who wrote Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa, and uh, lots of great talks. And uh, a great place if you want to, you know, if you're an aspiring screenwriter and you want to network, go there. Uh, and time now for a second interview. Stephen Merchant is not just the co-creator of The Office and Extras alongside Ricky Gervais, but he's a successful stand-up actor and writer in his own right. He's also, as if we could ever forget, Mr. P.I. Staker. He's now the star of his own sitcom, Hello Ladies, developed from his hit stand-up show. And he came at the pub to talk to Nick and Ali. Enjoy. Well, we are very happy to have Stephen Merchant in the podcast booth with us today in honour of his latest TV show, Hello Ladies, which is on Sky Atlantic. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
Now, you are known as, by some people, some odd people, as the podfather. <laughs> we're, <Sure. laughs> we're here on the Empire Podcast. Can you guarantee, as one of the men behind the most downloaded podcast of all time, that mm. this will be number two? I can't guarantee that, but that's because it's all down to you guys. Oh. It depends what you're bringing to the party. You know I'm going to hit it out of the park. Sure. With some droll anecdotes about being <laughs> six foot seven. Or, you know, being slightly awkward in Los Angeles near celebrities. That's, that's you know, I'm, I'm bringing that to the table. What you guys do, whether you can elevate it, whether you can say something inane, like Carl Pilkington would definitely help. We, I was going to say, we're kind of all Carl Pilkingtons here. Right. But without that. So if you could say something, like, I remember when we really realised we were onto something was the time we were talking, and he said, what were those things in the film Gremlins called? <laughs> Gremlins. It was Gremlins, Carl. The, the clue, my friend, was in the title. Well, yeah, we, we can definitely manage a bit So of you that. can probably manage that, yeah. So, hello, ladies. You've got your own HBO show, right. which is pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm. Would you say it's the anti-entourage? Is that is yes. that a pitch that you would use? Yes. Okay, maybe I read you saying that. I just read yes. it back to you. Yes. So, where did the idea come from? Was it always going to be set in LA? Well, I did a stand-up show called Hello, Ladies about my sort of ill-fated dating life, and I did the show in Los Angeles, and HBO came and, and said, you know, think about it as a sitcom here in LA. Uh, I think that was the thing they particularly responded to. And, and I, what I liked about that was I didn't want it to be about me as a celebrity comedian type, but I did want that idea of the person who's trying to access the glamorous world, the world of beautiful women and and VIP parties behind red velvet ropes, the, the version of LA that we are all sold, particularly in England, you know, through movies and TV from when we grew up. And, you know, I feel like in the 80s when I was growing up, it was Moonlighting and, and I remember the Rockford Files and, and I don't know, L.A. seemingly... There's always women getting out of limousines in, in mink coats, you know, and um, and one of the things we've tried to reflect in the music is is how I imagine my character would have soundtracked L.A., which is the sound of the saxophone, you know, sexy and... Yeah, so that was sort of the jumping-off point, really, was kind of someone trying to live a fantasy life and so it's an HBO show. We've all seen Game of Thrones. Are you right. planning to get naked? I do actually it? get a little bit naked in the final episode, yes. Oh. yes. When the dragon turns up. When the dragon <laughs> arrives, yeah. The whole thing's finished, yeah, and mm. it builds to that to that nude moment. So look forward to that, ladies. <laughs> but, I mean, somebody watching your work could come to the conclusion that your life is one big series of awkward uh, right. encounters. Right. Uh, to what extent is that true? When did you last have an embarrassing moment? I went to a party thrown by the comedian Sarah Silverman while I was in Los Angeles. Someone offered me some chocolate. And in Los Angeles, chocolate doesn't necessarily mean it's just chocolate. There's a lot of recreational items because it's legalised in California. And I ate this chocolate and I went into a hole of despair and darkness that I couldn't uh, escape from. I took a lie down at the party for a while to try and see if that would help. That didn't. And I'm too big, really, to lie down at a party. You mean size-wise, right? Size-wise. You're not too big. I don't mean too big in, in, a, in, a, in a personality sense. Uh, no, just literally physically, I'm too <laughs> long to take up three or four couches. And so I then went to the bathroom and I... You know, if you've eaten something you shouldn't, the best thing to do is to stare yourself in the mirror for an hour. That, that helps. That didn't work. So I walked out of the party and I thought I'd get a breath of air. And um, the route I took led me straight through an eight-foot plate glass window that smashed in its entirety crashed around me and I kind of was cut on the hand and the head and I turned around to see you know 200 of of Hollywood's alumni staring back at me and you could see because a lot of them were comedians and you could see that it was like how long is it before we can get our cameras out (laughs) 
and take a picture of this. There was any thought of, is this a really big skit? Has this been <laughs> right. a really excellently done? This is all sugar glass. Right. Stephen's nailing it, right? Right. There's a, it's like a, there's a hidden camera somewhere. This is going to be on that, yeah. Hello, ladies. Mm. Season yeah. two. Mm. Talking of celebrity interactions, yes. I really want to ask you about your scene with Robert De Niro. Yes. In extras, which is one of my favourite right. things. Up there with the Liam Neeson one, in mm. fact, which is also incredible. Um, how did that come about? We had started writing the series with the intention that Ricky would have a meeting with Robert De Niro at the end, or was would have a like a, a planned meeting with Robert De Niro. And we rather sort of bravely started writing this without getting a yes from Robert De Niro. And then as and then the clock kept ticking, and we'd sort of. Uh, Ricky done a film with him and there was like talk that he may or may not do but he couldn't fit it in because he was very busy and so we were like we didn't have any fallback plan because we'd kept on filming episodes where we'd go where we'd say like oh if only I could meet Robert De Niro <laughs> or oh, Robert De Niro and it's like how are we going to get around this if we have to replace it yeah it wouldn't be quite the same <laughs> and then sort of miraculously we found out that like Robert De Niro was available for sort of 45 minutes and uh, in a hotel room and we and we kind of got there and we were also quite intimidated because it's Robert De Niro and he was actually very sweet he's quite a shy man mm. well quite a quiet man I should say but very affable and um, and I remember during the scene the idea was that I was waiting for Ricky to show up with Robert De Niro and we were both awkwardly waiting in this hotel room and at one point I, I mean I don't know why we never put it in the show but I actually at one point started singing Robert De Niro's waiting talking Italian I was like have you heard that song and he went no I goes no Banana Rama never heard that and it's an added frisson because Sarah from Bananarama is my third cousin to add a kind of added dimension to it. <laughs> but I couldn't tell if he was if he was answering in character or answering as the real De Niro. I never established whether he had ever heard that song or not. And then he did the scene and he was gone. So there's a chance he might think you've made that song up. Possibly. To sing to Possibly. Him. Yeah. riffing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he keep the pen? No, but I kept the pen. You've got, so have you yeah. got that in a oh, glass yeah. case? Well, I, so. I carry it with me all times in case I need a quick <laughs> bit of writing. Now, extras is something fantastic you've been involved in that's stuffed with celebrities. Mm. Uh, yesterday I watched a bit of Movie 43, right. which has just popped up on Netflix, yes. which is also stuffed with celebrities. Yes. Perhaps not so successful. Right. Uh, Hugh Jackman and um, Richard Gere also apologised right. for it. Have you anything to say? The, the way it came back for me was I was doing a film with the Farrelly brothers and then Peter called me and said, do you want to do a sketch with Halle Berry? And obviously I said yes. Like, what What kind of a maniac would he even... I mean, I think I said yes before he'd finished the word Halle. I, I knew where this was going. And I spent two, about two days kind of in this little... Mexican restaurant with this with filming with Halle Berry who might be the most beautiful human being I've ever mm. seen in the flesh like just you want to kind of take her and put her on a shelf as an <laughs> objet d'art have you mm. seen my Halle Berry it's an original <laughs> and um and so I never really it didn't even occur to me like that it would ever be in a film or anything I mean I just it was just I did it and, and that was that really so yeah so I've sort of to me it's like I I make no apologies for the film because mm. I just did it for for the fun of being in a scene with Halle Berry. I, I you know I didn't I didn't do it for your amusement. <laughs> no, no, fair enough. Fair enough. Why not? Uh, I mean your skit goes to more extremes perhaps than any other skit in the whole film. I sort of think of the guacamole shot right. in particular. Right. Right, right, right. Yes. In which Halle Berry sort of has a prosthetic boob on right. and is mixing up guacamole. Yes. What were you thinking when you were doing that? Because that's I quite just thinking unusual... this is hilarious. I was just thinking what a weird <laughs> I'll what a weird day. Yeah, I I I mean, so much of what I've done is governed by sort of I don't want to go to my grave having not seen <laughs> Halle Berry with a prosthetic boob mixing guacamole. That's one of my bucket list items, and it, there it is, ticked off. That's an amazing coincidence that yeah. that was on your checklist. It was remarkable. The Farrelly's come along and go, we want to do this, and you go, 
All right, let me just check something here, <laughs> Peter. Is there going to be a guac scene with a fake boob and berry? Yes, I'm in. You've been writing it into every one of your scripts right, for years, exactly. so it's <laughs> worked yeah. out. Does Hollywood try to, you know, are you constantly getting scripts from Hollywood? Holly- I never get scripts from Hollywood. No, really? No one, no one gives me any attention. No. They don't. They don't. I'm not saying being modest. They just. I don't think. I think. I, they don't. I don't occur to them. But it doesn't concern me. I mean, I. You know, I, it's fun to pop up in those, in those little films. You know, little bits in films and that. But it's not. It's not what I feel mm. my job, my career is. You know, that's those are like bonus, bonus items. They're <laughs> bonus levels in the video game of my life. You know, those little side games mm. you get to do. Yeah, I give it a year as well. It's another one where you're right. You're, that was Dan saying. You know, Dan Mazur, the director, saying. You know, would you do it? Yep. That was fun. And I did a kind of couple of days mm. here and there, and mm. he let me muck around and improvise, and it was mm. great. Yeah, I had a great time. I don't know if you remember this. I saw you doing the Hello Ladies uh, show a couple of years ago, and you cut your hand right at the beginning of the. You came That's on stage right. and cut yes. your hand, yes, and you had I to did. sort of get medical attention. Yes, <laughs> you handled it. There's very... a good example, and that, again, of what I mean is just just kind of a clumsiness <laughs> that that then sort of because I remember people thinking like. I got the sense people were like, is is this part of the shtick? Yeah. And then like being slightly kind of appalled and a little <laughs> bit kind of disgusted and I think the microphone stand just collapsed and just sliced yeah, my yeah, hand yeah. open. Yeah. I was gonna ask, how do you cut yourself on a stand up? I mean there's not much Right, there's not much there. That yeah. might be a world first. Yeah, I mean preposterous. But yeah. I think you you handled it very well. I, I was going to ask if that's the the worst thing that's happened to you on on stage. Have you ever? Because Nick Frost talks about at the beginning of his career having two or three hideous experiences that almost made him give the whole thing up. That one was, that was just unfortunate. That that wasn't the worst. Uh, the worst I remember was was doing stand up years ago, many years ago in Exeter. No one laughed, except the waitress, and someone actually shouted "Taxi for the comedian." <laughs> Which I thought was just something you'd hear about, you know, but it didn't ever actually occur, and it did. And I came off stage, and the and the uh, waitress said that was hilarious. She was the only one who who was a fan. And yeah, it was funny because the same act I would then go and do somewhere else, and it would kill. So I, I that was for many years my experience of stand up, which was we just swung between people loved it or they hated it. And did, most of what I've done, that's the same opinion. Was it the same kind of material back then, or did we? No, it was. I was more of a sort of character. That the joke was kind of I'd come on and and I was sort of. In my mind, I was a big shot comedian from from Bristol, but of course, no one had ever heard of me, which was the joke. And I would say, look, if I was in Bristol, you'd be loving this, <laughs> and um, you'd be like, Christmas has come early, even if it was Christmas, and uh, and 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 Exeter just didn't go for it. But then I went, and I thought maybe it was because it was too close to Bristol, and they thought maybe they would <laughs> they should have heard of me. So I went to Cornwall, and they loved it in Cornwall. <laughs> So yeah, but I it was and I, I had my favorite bit I ever did, which was where I would deliberately make the show fall apart. So by the end, I would it was like, and the audience, if they got it, they loved it, and if they didn't, it was just like the show had fallen apart. And then I would say, right, I'm going to leave now. Don't look at me. Don't discuss this. Um, I'm going to walk off. I ran, give me a round of applause. I'm going to walk off. We won't talk about this ever any, any, anymore. And then I would walk off, leave the stage. They would clap. It would go quiet, and then I would come back on in silence and go, you can't get out that way. There's no exit. Um, I'm gonna have to come through the audience, and I just like just making it worse and worse. It was so much fun, um, but yeah, I, when I tried doing it again, once I'd been on TV, people were like, "This is weird because we do know who you are. <laughs> Why are you pretending we don't?" And are you involved because David Brent obviously is is coming back in, right in a form, mm-hmm. or is it going to be a movie? Is that I don't know. That's no. Right. I'm not involved. So with are it, you yeah. is your you haven't got any more involvement with the office at the moment? Not at the moment. No. Okay. No. All right. Have you got? Anything? I don't think if there's a film, it will be The Office, though. I think it would be David Brent, kind of separate. 
yeah, from that universe. They couldn't keep him there. We'd be lucky to get Martin Freeman, I would imagine. I remember listening to the podcast, and you and Ricky, neither of you are fans of the Lord of the Rings films. No. I think you've talked about it several times. Right. So have you seen The Hobbit? No. <laughs> no. Your loyalty doesn't... Uh, I, I think Martin's one of the best actors I've ever worked with, but I don't have an urge to see The Hobbit. I mean, I'd say that to his face. I probably wouldn't say that to his face, but no, I, I, I'm sure it's great. I just, I can't, I don't understand. I don't know what's going on. I can't understand the universe. I don't know why it's interesting. I just can't compute. It's weird to me. And I used to be in, I guess I was never into fantasy. I used to like kind of superhero movies and things when I was a kid and, and comics. I used to read comics, but I just never got into Lord of the Ringsy type stuff. There's like trees that can talk. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that, why. What are you talking about? And I don't understand the limits of the powers. I don't. Can, is Gandalf. What can he do and what can't he do? What are his powers? Can he click his fingers and just get the ring? Why can't. And then you spend nine hours following these characters and they get all the way to this mountain of doom or whatever. They throw the ring in there. Because I've seen them all, bear in mind. I saw all the Lord of the Rings. And then a giant bird comes and they jump on the bird and it flies them home. Now, where was the bird at the start? Why couldn't the bird fly them there to begin with? We could have got this whole shit done in like. 40 minutes I don't know how to break this to you the bird comes back in the, the new ones really yeah and takes them half the way what? and drops them off again. what is it like fucking Ryanair where you, it's like not. It's, sometimes it's fully booked and you can't it's, it's Luton not London it's yeah I just I really tried to get with it and I just couldn't I couldn't find figure out what was going on so are you into anything kind of traditionally geeky or I was into this stuff when I was a kid and then mm. I stopped mm. and became interested in adult things <laughs> and then suddenly the rest of the world became interested in it and now every other film's a comic book or a you know or like looking on the cover of your magazine here you know there's like there's the Hunger Games there there's like which is like a you know fantasy dystopian thing we've got science fiction there we've got the Hobbit you know the only one on there that really intrigues me is the counselor but only because I d- couldn't figure out what was going on from the trailer um, and it's nothing I'm nothing against these things I just it's just not really my I just not really into it really I don't know why do your ambitions stretch beyond just doing comedy? I mean, not just doing comedy. Obviously, comedy is a huge world in itself. But yeah, know. no, I'd like to do. I'd like to do drama. That's where I feel more interest. I'm sort of more interested in that. It's just it's hard to hmm. do that. Hmm. You know, I'd, yeah, so I'd love to do something in the kind of in the Breaking Bad Sopranos realm. I should be so lucky. I've just got a British version of Breaking Bad with Use Wattle White, and it's just blown my mind. Of course, of course, it has. Yeah. Whoa. Well, a lot of the actors in Breaking Bad started off as in comedy. That's true, yeah, yeah. So, so did uh, the main guy himself, yeah, Brian Cranston. Oh, yeah. yeah, you're right, yeah. There we go, now I'm imagining this. Yeah, Shaved good. head. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, anyway, yeah, my my mind's leaking now. But you are also, Goodness. you have played a villain in Portal 2. Right. When that was brought to your attention, you know, we were discussed you're not that much of a, a, a nerdy fellow. Right. What was your take on it? Were you just like, yeah, this will be uh, maybe... A good I didn't have any idea what that was. I, I, no. I, I used to play video games a bit when I had a flatmate. But when, when you lose your flatmate, playing video games on your own, I don't know. I, I Maybe if I'd gone online and played, it would have. Yeah. But I, it all seemed a bit weird to me. So I stopped. And then someone said, do you want to do this voice for Portal 2? And I was... I, I kind of like the idea of it because I've always enjoyed doing kind of voices for animation and things. It's sort of... It's quite fun because you have to worry about anything else. You just show up and they give you the script and because it's just sort of your voice, you, you don't have to prepare too much. And that was fun. And then inexplicably, or maybe not, maybe the game's great. I, again, I haven't played it. But... Um, People loved it. People went crazy for it's it. It's an astonishing game. Yeah. It's sad yeah. that you haven't played it because yeah. you are by far and the way the best thing in it. Thank you, yeah. And I've heard the game itself is also fun. Uh, it was exhausting, though, because you, I, I, what I had anticipated, of course, is you have to do every possible avenue. Mm. You know, So if there's some idiot player who kind of gets trapped in a corridor, you've got to, you've got to do a voice for that bit and you know, shouting. I mean, it was exhausting. 
Turn around! Yeah, it was like lots of shouting down imaginary gantries. <laughs> <laughs> but people, uh, I don't know, there's a whole other fan base for that. Oh, yeah. And you've, I, you know, again, I forgot that, that, that video games have a huge mm. following that's separate mm. from my interests. Have you been to Comic Con? I haven't been to Comic Con. No, no, that sounds. Just for doing that voice, I think you'd. Be, Do you think would I yeah, would I be well received? You're, you've Comic-Con. done other work. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. I should go. But yeah. You'd yeah, be an icon there. Oh, 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 big time! No, they, they would they would hail you as a god. Really? Yeah. I mean, especially if you were part of the UK version of Breaking Bad. I mean, they'd really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they'd really go to town. Well, we're all looking forward to that. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, not quite sure what the Breaking Bad version for English would be. Breaking Bad, being naughty. Where do you? Where do they make drugs? They make it in an RV, so I guess it would have to be a sort of caravan park, right? (laughs) In Bangor or something. Yeah, in in Swindon. Yeah, I think it's Swindon. Yeah, okay, just on the outskirts of Swindon. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, the the, the dark territory of Swindon will do it there. That could work. And just finally, uh, to wrap up, what what are you currently working on? Are you chipping away at more episodes of Hello Lady? Well, I mean, at the moment, it's just kind of in discussion about whether we do another season. That's no, not in discussion. It's just waiting for HBO to to decide if they want to do another one, and um, and I might dabble it again with some more stand up. It's just it's just exhausting. Mm. You know, it's like you said, going to these little pubs and trying out your little yeah. five minutes, and it's just it's time consuming and you know and stressful. And so, mm. you know, maybe I'll just um, maybe I'll just catch up on the Hobbit. I did a bit once on stage about the Lord of the Rings, and I felt like people were like, "Hey, don't don't badmouth Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Come on, Steve." Come on, mate. Be cool. We it's were on sick. your side until then. <laughs> it's a sacred cow. Stephen Merchant, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having really me. Thank Cheers. you. And now it's time to peruse your choices at this week's Cinemaplex. Let's start with the biggin. This week's biggin, anyway. Ender's Game is a sci-fi epic based on the book by the controversial author. We don't have time to get into that one, I don't think. Uh, Orson Scott Card, starring Asa Butterfield as a young boy who might be Earth's best hope in a grueling intergalactic war. And Harrison Ford as the gruff mentor who trains him. Thoughts on this one? Hell's Bells. Yeah, um, I wrote the the review for this, actually, because I'm a huge fan of the book. Um, I think the, the book is it's weird, but it's great. And it makes for quite a difficult subject of adaptation. I think that's what's been interesting in seeing how they've done it here. So the story is Ender, real name Andrew, that's just the way it gets pronounced um, as a kid. Um, he is one of a group of young people who are basically taken into this battle school to be trained as the leaders of an Earth army. And the reason Earth needs an army is because we've been attacked by these bugs, these uh, aliens. Everyone's afraid that they're going to come back. They can see in long-range deep space scanning that they're coming back and we need a we need great leaders to you know, deal with it. So people are trained from birth and Ender seems to be the best of the bunch and therefore Harrison Ford um, basically puts him through hell to make sure that he's capable of leading this army. Um, So that's kind of the setup. but you've got lots of of sort of, I guess, people around them. You've got Ben Kingsley as the former war hero, Mazer Rackham, who is the the guy that Ender has to live up to and indeed surpass if he's going to do everything that needs to be done. Hayley Steinfeld's in there as a fellow recruit um, Abigail Breslin plays Ender's older sister, and there's a kind of a there's a thing there where he's he's kind of torn between his better nature and his violent side. A, a, Ender's a kid who's v- capable of a great deal of violence, but is troubled by his conscience at the same time. And there's a really interesting thing which I think they have mostly gotten across on screen, which is that the whole universe seems intent on rewarding him for violence, 
and yet he's continually pricked by his own conscience and doesn't want to kind of give in to that side of himself. So there's a really interesting thing where basically Andrew himself is both the hero and the villain of this story in some ways. So yeah, it's a story about kids being put through hell in order to see if they're good enough war leaders. You explained all that so much better than the film itself did, (laughs) I've got to say. Yeah, I think there is a bit of that. I think uh, having... (laughs) I was was very interested when I came out of the film, I thought, actually, that's not a bad adaptation in many ways. Mm. Um, I do have some issues with it, which I'll get onto in a minute. But I wonder how it plays for people who haven't read the book. Now, some people who haven't read the book, I think really and actually did kind of get into it. But a lot of what I've said there isn't entirely explicit in the film. It's kind of I'm I'm seeing it. And I think some people saw it anyway, but it isn't always laid out in full. I love the, I love the concept of it. It's basically mm. Harry Potter meets Starship Troopers. Yeah, it is. You know, it? it's this like, weird idea of a future where, where where all of Earth society has been united, but so militarily mobilised that uh, you know children get recruited into you know in, into the uh, whatever the space mm. army, the forces. Um, but it, it didn't really connect connect things up for me. I kept I kept being confused as to why Ender was so important. Um, and I think you know it's it's to, to have this thing that Ben Kingsley's character had saved the world all that mm. time before yeah. then why wasn't he the guy yeah that isn't terribly well explained in to be honest it's not that well explained in the book either but <laughs> right. it's definitely not explained at all in the film it's like well he saved us last time why can't he do it again um, I think in the book it's basically he's been travelling at relativistic speeds to stay young enough <laughs> you know light speed come on yeah um, to to actually still be alive by the time that the because it's all done at you know sub light speed um Speeds. So basically, yeah. a, a, a bug army takes decades to reach mm. Earth and vice versa, which is kind yes. of interesting. They're not called buggers in the film. They're not called out. buggers. No. Uh, no, they are called the Formics. The Formic. From um, the planet Formica. My problem with this is, genuinely, I think you can't read... I think they did a, a, the best adaptation they probably could have done of this book, but I still don't think it quite works as a film mm. because I don't think you can ultimately make this work as a film so much of it is internal they've they've cut out an entire subplot of the book which is what Ender's siblings get up to back on earth and that that becomes important for the better set of sequels to the book um but it also means that you lose a lot of Ender's kind of internal struggle because he is very much torn between becoming like his brother or becoming like his sister and his sister's essentially essentially good and his brother's essentially a psycho and Ender's very much torn between them his whole time and and you don't entirely get that because they lose all of that earthbound stuff which I think is kind of a shame so you know I think they and there are also moments that they just fumble after the big climactic moment of the film there is a, a, a bit of really bad background acting and I know this sounds like I'm picking <laughs> picking holes in it but what you've got to remember is Ender's all of Ender's friends are also some of the smartest kids in the world And they get this, you know, after this big event occurs, they need to react in some way and they're kind of just standing there. And it takes away massively, for me anyway, from the scene. So I think there are moments where they kind of mess it up. But generally speaking, it's not a bad adaptation. It's just not an adaptation that entirely works as a film. So it kind of was a two and a half, but we went two. I read the book very recently because I was interviewing the uh, director, Gavin Hood, who is also the writer of this film. (laughs) And he was the guy who brought us... Totsi and the Wolverine <laughs> no, uh, Wolverine Origins which is much maligned um, the latter rather than the former and I really did like the book there's a lot mm. to be said about it that's really interesting it really talks about whether you would overcome your humanity for humanity there's lots going on there but what I wanted to see on the big screen was the battle room that's where these kids, uh, they all have different names for the different houses, Rat and Salamander and they 
learn to become better commanders by firing these kind of like ice rifles or ice pistols that don't turn you into ice but freeze you how does that come across on screen is that interesting or could it come across like watching two people playing chess no it comes across quite interestingly but they did leave out some of the sort of the most kind of iconic bits of the battle room sequences in the book um in the in ender's first time out in the battle room in the book he basically so other people can freeze bits of you and then if you get shot too many times then you're dead and and the battle game is over um but he goes in he freezes his own um lower legs and then in a sort of kneeling position and that serves as a shield for the rest of him and then he can basically just fly through the battle room because it's all zero g and shoot everybody else and like they'd leave out little tiny moments like that because they're trying to get the entire i mean the, the battle room sequences in the book that's like the middle two-thirds of the book that would work so well on screen you see this ingenious there are moments like that but they don't quite they don't hit all the moments that you want them to and and they you know it's an adaptation it's a movie if it was a mini series they'd absolutely spend probably three out of six episodes in the battle room the problem is you can't do zero g in a mini series because it would cost an absolute fortune they did the zero g stuff well they do yes but i still didn't quite see how how it connected up with what happened at the end they needed a line really saying we need you to be thinking (laughs) three-dimensionally you know they need to explain that that's why you're fighting in zero g they need to explain that's why it's also important and and they didn't always quite explain those things i think it's in some ways good i think a lot of movies kind of over explain but at the same time it's such a a a weird concept and a hard sell in some ways that but it does over explain in other elements like the dialogues between viola davis and harrison ford yeah which which is just kind of like classic tell don't show stuff yeah she's basically saying you're being too hard on the boy he's saying no I have to be but yeah. but that's repeated several times the same times. conversation yeah. all the way through the film on that note uh, what is Harrison Ford like because we're getting him back in a sci-fi and he's been doing press for this and he's he's been talking good game and he's been being gruff which I love is he <laughs> is he lovely and gruff yeah, he's in gruff this? he's gruff his, his, his character name is literally Hiram Gruff or graph, yeah, but close. Uh, <laughs> very close. He he's good. Um, he doesn't. Ha- it's not a, a multi-layered performance in many ways, but he does manage to communicate. I think the hu- the humanity beneath the guy who has to put these kids through hell, and I think I think he did very well with with a reasonably limited amount of screen time. I should say, Asa Butterfield as well. I think is is decent as Ender. It's qu- he's quite buttoned up and quite insular, but I think you get the sense that there's something going on behind yeah. his eyes which he needed to have. Yeah. So yeah, I mean. I, it's, it's a weird thing. I don't have any major problems with a lot of what they've done, but I still just didn't quite think it worked. There yeah. you go. Agreed. There you go. Two stars for Ender's Game, which is not a recommendation. So you, would, you wouldn't recommend people just catch on the big screen for the spectacle, or is there no spectacle to catch? I, honestly, I, I genuinely, I kind of wrote it as a two and a half. So I was really on the fence about it. I kept going back and forth. This was a tough review to write. I'd have gone to myself. Sorry, Mister being Mister Harsh, but but when it does get to the spectacle, I honestly it was it was do- just dots flying around on the screen as far as I was concerned. While okay. while children sit at computer screens. Okay, cool. Well, okay, so maybe save it for the DVD or Blu-ray. Uh, let's move on now to Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs two, the sequel to. Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, the surprisingly excellent animated smash hit from Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Lay and Mr. T have departed, but the sequel brings back Bill Hader, Anna Faris, James Caan and Andy Samberg for more nom-nom-nonsense. Any thoughts on this one? I really enjoyed this. I think the first one it was an absolute delight. In that I, don't, I certainly didn't expect anything of it. I kind of went in and it blew me away. It was mm. a complete sleeper hit. Um, this one, obviously, I went in with much, much higher expectations, but it pretty much met them. It's a little bit uh, weird again. It's very colourful. Um, the animation is a very stylized kind of 
bizarrely kind of low, I think deliberately lo-fi in some ways in terms of the character design of the people mm-hmm. um, kind of a look. But it, it kind of works just because it's all so over the top and so crazy. How do we get a sequel to this film? Because the first yeah. one I thought was quite conclusive. We have a we have a super scientist, or rather a hapless, haphazard scientist, coming up with this machine that mm. can create food. That goes haywire. It litters his town of Swallow Falls. There's a joke in there with loads of hamburgers and whatnot. They, giant food, yeah. giant food. Then they go up to find this machine, which is up in the middle of space, basically clouds, clouds. Yeah. All right, and then they defeat it, and that's the story. You need to watch the film because it's very good. Mm. How do we have more? Well, it turns out when they blew the, uh, the the invention, the machine, out of the clouds, it essentially fell to Earth, damaged but not destroyed, and landed in a puddle. And in that puddle, it went a bit haywire again, further haywire, and started inventing food animals. What? Food animals. So like melephants. Melephants? And this movie's amazing for The puns yeah. are incredible. Shrimpanzees. I mean, mm. I'm I'm there, man. They had a guy who worked on the film who went away over a weekend and came back with 200 food puns. And they're pretty food much all puns, there. And they're pretty much all in the movie, yeah. Um which I I just I loved. Even if you're even if you're above puns, that they're so good that you'll be back on board, frankly. There's one in the trailer where and I love puns, but to get a good bad pun delivered well is a really difficult task. And you've got to deliver it quite bluntly and quite loudly. But there's a bit where they're on a boat and there is a certain vegetable in the driver's seat of the boat. Someone shouts, ah, there's a leak in the boat. There is a talking leak sitting on the driver's seat. Then the leak screams. I know it's stupid, but that alone makes me want to watch it. Yeah. And that actually, not to give away too many sports, that's repeated more than once and it's still funny um, it's uh, it's just very very funny it doesn't quite have the great father son moments of the first film because uh, I think that had a really lovely kind of um, you know father son bonding story as well um, so it, it kind of does that again but not quite as well but it was just so funny and so clever that I was mm. kind of on board anyway it has one of the best visual jokes I, I think I've, I've seen for a long long time uh, I won't give it away but it involves an alleyway that's all I'm going to say uh, absolutely genius worthy of Sucker Abrahams and Sucker themselves uh, so we gave this four stars Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs two four stars uh, and we're going to switch tack completely now for the Selfish Giant there's there's a double bill uh, a harrowing tale of life on a Bradford Council estate by fast rising Brit director Cleo Bernard um, what did we make of this one well, this is about two Bradford school boys um, who are basically hard up for cash and they decide to um, set up their own scrap metal business, basically. Kids nowadays, isn't it? Essentially, um, they, they go to work for a, a, a scrap metal merchant uh, who is uh, a less than... Uh, less than scrupulous. Yeah, less than scrupulous character. Uh, and this is, this movie reminded me a lot. I saw this in Cannes. And it reminded me a lot of Tyrannosaur, Paddy Considine's brilliant Tyrannosaur. Uh, I don't think it's as good as Tyrannosaur or as ultimately moving or, or uplifting as Tyrannosaur, but it is an absolute gut punch, this film. It is. Is it lochi? F- Would you say it's lochi? It's very lochi. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes and no. There's. Um, there's a bit of Kez in there, isn't there? No, there's a, I think there's more abstraction to this than, say, Ken Loach. Oh, so more Lynn Ramsey ish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would say okay. so. Okay. And. Um, 
It's this is a film that starts off with these two lead characters who are brilliantly played by two first-time actors, uh, really authentic. They're from Bradford. Uh, Connor Chapman as Arbor, who's a, a young blonde guy who basically has lots of anger issues. He's on medication. He's about eleven or twelve years old, and his best friend, a slightly slower Swifty, played by Sean Thomas, and there's almost a sort of Lenny and George type di- dynamic going on here as well. Um, and uh, they bunk off school. They they are they're getting up to all sorts of of no good, and and they're kids who basically have no hope right from the very very start. Life has conspired to uh, put them in these situations. They're you know they they have they, they don't really have parents who love them. They've got no money. There's no way out for them. They they don't want to go to school. The education system fails them. They're failed at every single turn, and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And the thing that saves this is the uh, the relationship between the two kids, which is affecting and real, and they're just absolutely brilliant in these roles. Such good performances. Such good performances. You, you do kind of wonder where they can go after this. I mean, I spoke to them in Cannes, and they, they do want to try acting... Uh, after this movie, but I, I do wonder if the, these roles are so indelible well, for them. worked for Thomas Turkus, you remember, from This Is yeah, England, and, absolutely. And, and, then, and then he kind of, you know, he, he managed to get a career out of it, and then yeah. if you think of uh, Sweet 16, Ken Loach's Sweet 16. Martin Comston. Martin Comston, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he went on to good stuff. Uh, yeah, the ending of this movie is an absolute gut punch, uh, but it is at times, and it, uh, again, this reminds me of Tyrannosaur, it is, it's bleak, and it's powerful, but it also find, sometimes finds a grim beauty in its bleakness. So uh, do go check it out. It's one of the year's very, very best British films, and we give it four stars. Moving swiftly on, we've got One Chance, which is the biopic of Britain's Got Talent winner Paul Potts, which stars James Corden as a silky-voiced tenor, along with Alexandra Roach, Julie Walters, and Colin Meaney. Oh, and also Mackenzie Crook, which makes this the unofficial second part of the Three and Out trilogy. Can't wait for the third. The Three and Out affair, I mean, we can call it that, uh, was was very bad. Uh, <laughs> it this, was very bad. This this is not very bad. Hooray. I, I think this is, and there is so much kind of prefaced to be given with this, but I would give this a pass. It is not by any means the best biopic you'll ever watch in your life, but for what it's worth, if you're into this whole kind of thing, this is a opera-style musical, but not quite, which tells the story of a carphone warehouse manager called Paul Potts, uh, who back in 2007 won... Britain's Got Talent. Now this is the story of before that, way before that when he was just doing his job and he loved singing and got bullied for it at school. Uh, he has his best mate who's his, his manager, his superior at Carphone Warehouse and this is James Corden he's just trying to make the best of a bad situation. He wants to sing but he can't he just doesn't feel like there's any way of doing it he needs to save money if he has any chance so he can go to Venice to study opera and sing it uh, there uh, in a proper college for opera singing. Now, as a biopic, it does have to obviously stick to the truth for the most part, and the trouble, the biggest trouble this film has is that the truth is kind of episodic and lumpy. There are quite a few different areas of his life, things happen to him, he gets into accidents, and something goes wrong, something goes right, that means that this doesn't flow in the way that you would like it to if this was made just to be a film. James Corden is warm and funny, uh, and does a good job of making you feel for this character that at times makes decisions quite frustratingly badly and that said there is an annoyance with the fact that he obviously has to sing a lot in this film and he has to sing opera tunes but he doesn't (laughs) sing them James Corden doesn't sing them they're actually piped in they're Paul Potts himself singing those arias over his mouthing right now the problem with that is that it doesn't feel real this miming and the songs 
it jolts. So you want to get behind him and go, wow, he's belting out this great song, but you know he's not. And it's just a little frustrating. That said, it's enjoyable, fluffy, uh, a bit silly. If you were hoping for a lot from Julie Walters, you're not going to get it. And if you're, <laughs> it. She's barely in it at all. It's quite frustrating. She plays his mum. And Colin Meany is good. It's, it turns into a bit of a father-son thing uh, by the end of the affair. But, you know... This will be great for your your mummy who's into Britain's Got Talent, but really, I wouldn't hunt it down. My feeling is they kind of missed their chance at this movie, didn't they? I mean, 2007 was Paul Potts' big win, and I haven't really heard much of him since. I'm sure he's had a couple of records and done fairly well, but... He's got a best of coming out. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Really? Really. How long's that? I bet that's got Ness and Dormer on it. I bet it does. Uh, you have you do kind of think that maybe they just missed the boat a little bit that this should have come out two or three years ago I agree they so. missed their one chance but David Frankel who directs this he directed The Devil Wears Prada so it's it's and, quite uh, it's quite odd and Marley and Me with um, with Owen Wilson Helen it's not getting any better Chris oh, please yeah. Helen please Anyway, uh, the film, I don't think necessarily could have been any better. It's an unusual story that was not necessarily lending itself to a film adaptation, but James Corden walks away admirably. He is a charming, warm character. Hooray for James Corden, and he's probably the the reason why we gave it three stars. I would say so, yes. Yeah. And last, we have Closed Circuit, a courtroom thriller from John Crowley, starring Eric Bana and Rebecca Hall as two lawyers working on the same case who can't share information with each other. Is that is that right, Helen? Is that what happens? That is right, Is that yes. a legal thing that, that's actually true? It's it's a thing that apparently happens in, in cases involving national security issues. So Rebecca Hall is allowed the national security stuff, but she can't tell Eric Bana about any of it, even though no. he's, he's dealing with the non-national security stuff in the same case. Um, it all involves uh, revolves around a bombing at um, Borough Market. Um, is the idea in in London, obviously, and the suspect who the one surviving suspect who is taken in by the police, they both represent him. They're both his defence lawyers, um, but they're obviously dealing with two halves of the same case, and both become convinced that things are being hidden from them, and they have to work together to find out what it oh is, even though God. they're not allowed to work together. And do they find that they are falling for each other at the same time? You mean they their past relationship intrudes no! once again? Oh, they're former thought? lovers. They're former lovers. And does the robot come alive? <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's short circuit, but good, good guess, Dan. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I was a little bit right. Okay, Br- bringing in personal history to it, I was a barrister. Yes. I was a little- not for a good one. You were disbarred, weren't you, because of all those people you killed? <laughs> no, I left voluntarily. All right, I wasn't disbarred. After all the, the people, that's your were story, killed. Helen. That stick to that. <laughs> I'm going to leave now. Someone else clean up. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, my point being, I think there's a genuinely interesting film in talking about the way barristers work. The the profession of barristering is genuinely a bizarre and a weird and a crazy one. And I think there's a really interesting film there that you could make. This isn't it. So this doesn't raise the bar. This doesn't raise oh. the bar. Well done. This basically is a, a John Grishamy kind of wannabe. It's a bit sort of Pelican Briefish, mm. but with the wigs and the gowns. And I think it would be much more interesting if you did something that was actually about how the English legal system really works. This is trying to make a kind of political point, and and for my money, it didn't because it fell into just standard thriller, run around London with the security forces after you kind of territory, which I thought was was a bit weak. So we gave it two stars. It's it's not all it could be. That's a shame. Sorry about that. It's always sad to leave on a on a bum note. Mm. 
anyway, let's move on because we have, uh, as it's Halloween coming up, uh, we do have some horror films coming out. Uh, some crackers have been re-released in key cities this weekend. F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu is coming out. Ooh, brilliant. Ooh, so go and check that one out if you can. And The Exorcist is getting its umpteenth re-release. So do expect to see the good Dr. Kerr mode in the screening near you. Uh, and now, as Mr. Macon says in The Fog, and yes, he is one of the 666 greatest horror movie characters of all time. We have enough time for one more story, or interview in this case, and we've lined up a belter for you. Yes, Ender's Game, as we've explained, may not be all that, but Harrison Ford is Harrison Ford. And when you get a chance to talk to the man who is Han Solo, Indiana Jones, Jack Ryan, John Book, Dr. Richard Kimball, Rick Deckard, and his character from Firewall, you damn well take it. Nick and Helen went along to talk to Ford when he was in London recently and had a veritable whale of a time. Enjoy. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. We are joined today by a very special guest, Harrison Ford. Thank you for coming on. Um, oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. And we're talking about Ender's Game. So, I mean, this is a film that they've been trying to figure out a way to make for sort of 20, 30 years. You yeah. Know, you could nearly originally have played Ender. It's been so long. <laughs> Not quite, but thanks for the thought. No, it is true. There were many challenges to be um, overcome in, in, in uh, committing to the making of this film. And although it easily found its hands into the uh, into the studio system, they were a little leery of the thematics of it and the and trying to figure out how to commercialize it so that it was a sure bet. Finally, I think uh, the right people uh, got their hands on it. People who are committed to the book, to the the utility of the themes of this uh, of this story, and ambitious to find a way to give it uh, a, a big enough expression, truthful enough expression, to maintain the f- the fan base of the people who who were engaged by the story, who read the story who found it important uh, and useful in their lives. And at the same time, happily, the whole world of, uh, of capacity to generate uh, uh, realistic-looking special effects had, had advanced. And, you know, some things just take a while to develop, and I'm glad it did because the, the themes and the, and the uh, story are as relevant uh, today as they were 30 years ago. That's not always the case. You also get to do your first ever zero G scene, which was impressive. I was on set. I was told that you had brought your own harness to set to do that scene. Well, I have. You know, I've I've done uh, uh, movies in which uh, a flying harness had been built for me, and they're specifically uh, tailored to each uh, person's physiognomy. And uh, so I brought mine, uh, thinking that they uh, they could save a buck or two. Um, how about working with with the the younger members of the cast? Because you you have probably more scenes with them than than any of the other kind of adult cast. Um, well, I almost uh, always am working uh, specifically with uh, Asa with with Ender, and um, I was delighted to have an actor of his capacity and sensitivity to work with. He's uh, very focused. Uh, he's got a great work ethic and, and enormous talent. So he made it very easy uh, the scenes with him. But also there were, you know, there were other important scenes involving uh, Viola Davis and uh, Sir Ben Kingsley. Um, and uh, I was happy to be to have a very high uh, capacity yeah. um, bunch of actors to work with. I'm delighted. Given that it's October, I wanted to ask about Halloween. Your, your costumes are kind of legendary. <laughs> We're huge fans. We, we, can you give us a preview of what you've, you've got lined up? One of the great disappointments uh, is, is that I'm not going to be with my 
family on Halloween this year. I've committed to some necessary tasks, and uh, I won't be home on Halloween, so I'm missing. I'm missing the opportunity to make a fool of myself this. <laughs> because a lot of, this a lot of Halloween. people don't realize, but you have dressed as a peapod. You've dressed as a kind of '80s rock star. Uh, who comes up with these ideas, and do you do door-to-door trick-and-treating? Or? Uh, well, you know, we have a 12-year-old at, at home who, who uh, in, you know, who's enthusiastic about about the, uh, not for himself, but I mean, he's enthusiastic about uh, getting uh, his mother and I in, uh, in, in costume. And then, you know, he doesn't do very much himself. You know, it's fun. It's a family uh, event, and we go with a bunch of other families that we we know so uh but it's a kind of last minute thing i must say in, in terms of uh, of your work i mean do you have a lot of time off i mean for example we've been talking a lot in break about breaking bad in the office do you watch tv shows what, what do you like to do in your off time you know i like to um uh participate in normal family life i like to be with my family i like to see my kids play with my kids i like to to uh, enjoy my uh, home. I like to fly. I like to uh, play tennis. Uh, there's lots of lots of things to do besides work. <laughs> Your viewing habits then are presumably dictated by the twelve-year-old. Well, they are mostly. You know, I've I've seen uh, most of the Harry Potter films at least five times, uh, and uh, and I'm I'm happy that he's you know. That his uh, viewing taste is uh, still sequestered. Not, not a. I don't know why I would use that word in, in that area, the fantasy area. He's got no taste for kind of. He's got no taste for violence, or so. I'm happy that he's uh, that he's happy there right now. You're obviously doing Anchorman too, which was a bit of a surprise to some people. But I've heard that you're also it was a, a bit fan of a surprise to me. <laughs> I hadn't seen Anchorman one when I went, but there were people. <laughs> There are people I, I, you know, vaguely knew, and I thought it would be fun. Have you seen the first one now? I have. <laughs> what did you make of it? You know, it was consistent with the experience I had making Ingerbrand too. I, I, it's a different way of working. I've, I've also heard you're a fan of Dumb and Dumber. I am a fan of Dumb and Dumber, and I can't wait to see the second one. <laughs> That's really cool. I think because you've got a reputation for being quite serious a lot of the time, so it's always yeah, kind of interesting. Do I? A little bit, yeah. Do I? Oh, okay. <laughs> So what what did you have to do in Anchorman? Was it were you kind of ad living as well, or were you trying to be the straight person in the middle? So they've got no that, that would that would be useless to try and be the straight man in that company. <laughs> no, I just went with the flow, and uh, I mean you'll see. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, it's coming out in December. They tell me we have a kind of regular thing that we do on the podcast called IMD Bunker, where we look at the trivia page of an actor and we find out if there's any sort of truth behind the, these things. Your trivia page says he provided the whip cracks on the Jimmy Buffett song Desperation Samba Halloween in Tijuana. True. <laughs> Recorded in my garage up in Wyoming. Big enough to swing a ramp uh, a whip in. So was it literally your Indiana Jones whip that you had that you kind of got out of story? It's the only whip I have. I, you know, I don't <laughs> I don't have the kind you can buy uh, you know at the uh, in the shop where you shouldn't be caught shopping. Okay, the IMDb page also says that um, you consider Mosquito Coast to be the best of your movies. Uh, I don't. I don't think best. I, I, that's that's uh, that's not honest or fair. I don't think I said that. But I did see that I thought that Mosquito was a Coast was a film that was often overlooked and underrated. And I was very proud of uh, 
of working with uh, Peter Weir and and making that movie. I don't think this one can possibly be true, but uh, it says one of the jobs in his early acting days was as a roadie on tour with The Doors. Not true again. No, I was an assistant cameraman on a documentary that was being made by some friends of mine. Um, I knew uh, Morrison and uh, their producer previous to that because I, I worked as a carpenter for Jim Morrison's wife at the time. Is it true that you turned on the lead role in Jurassic Park? Uh, yes, that's true. Is that because you felt it was too close to other movies that you'd made with Steven? I did, I yeah. did, yeah. Are you a fan of the film? I mean, it's an incredible I can't say that I've seen it all the way through, to tell you the truth. Oh, really? No, I, and I didn't stop watching it because I you know, didn't like it. I just, yeah. I just haven't had the occasion to sit down and watch it. And um, this one is that uh, you scared Steven Spielberg during the making of Temple of Doom by running out across the rope bridge to test its safety without having told anyone you were going to do that. Well, how else was I going to film on it? Uh, <laughs> sure, I w- didn't, uh, it didn't trouble me as much as it troubled Stephen. I saw other people go across it, and I was quite happy. It didn't bother me. Did you run across it, or did you kind of test it Well, first? sure. I, I don't remember, to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. How, do, how does one test a rope bridge? I don't know. You know. <laughs> Open in that position. Good enough test for me to watch some other fool go across it. <laughs> I just wanted to ask as well about what you've got coming up because obviously this was being filmed um, sort of next door to the escape plan with with Stallone and Schwarzenegger. So was that how you ended up in Expendables Three? Is that no, that no, no? It's a that was a uh, it was a last minute thing uh, on the Expendables, and I was on my way to Indonesia, and I figured out how to how I could travel through Bulgaria for five days to get to Indonesia to shoot a documentary uh, there. No, it's just another opportunity. I I hadn't talked to uh, Arnold about it uh, in New Orleans. And I actually, you know, I know Arnold through conservation efforts that we have in common, not... uh, not the movie business. Um, and is that? Do you I mean you, does that sort of take up some of your time nowadays as well? I guess. Yeah, I you know I've been on the board of an organization called Conservation International, and I serve as their vice chair. And I'm uh, very interested in the work that we do, and uh, and um, I do spend a certain amount of my time invested in in our efforts through that organization. Is it true that you took a canal holiday in North Wales at one point? Yeah. Have, yeah. You, got, have you got happy memories of that? Yeah, yeah. I love uh, canals and canal boats. done it here in England. I've done it in France. I've done it in Wales. Yeah, because it's, some, it's somewhat hard to sort of reconcile the image of you as an action hero with you on a barge in Wales. Yeah, well, it's easy, you know, it's easier if you if you realize that the action hero is a, is a myth, not a reality. Of course, I'm slowly getting to grips with that. But <laughs> what are what are the essential uh, things that you would take along on a on a barge if you're heading off on one of those holidays? Family, raincoat, snacks, little music. I'm sorry, we're going to have to ask about Star Wars. Has there been any movement? Is there any, you know, date that you think things will be announced and things will move forward that you've heard of? (laughs) Well, I think that makes everything clear. (laughs) And that is an exclusive. (laughs) How sick are you genuinely of, of being asked this? Or do you find it funny? Oh, I, you know, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm neither sick of it, nor do I find it <laughs> especially funny. It's a joke I've heard before, but I'm just not in a position to 
talk about it. Is, is there any chatter about Indy 5 at all? Oh, that's, you know, that's that's down the line. George Lucas just got married. He's got a new baby in the family. He's got other things to do besides sit down and try and figure out a new Indiana Jones. Um, there have been a couple of uh, germs uh, of ideas. And, uh, you know, the last one took 25 years or something, 20 years to come together. So... Uh, I'm uh, happy to wait. You have the whip in your garage already? Oh, uh, no, it's, uh, he's got the whip in his garage. Oh, I guess I suppose I have a whip somewhere, a musical whip. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I enjoyed it. Thank Thanks. you so much. Thank, Thank, you so much. Thank you. Harrison Ford! It was Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford. That was Ford. actually his voice. It was. That was in our ears. I'll tell you what, he was wearing like wire-rimmed spectacles that looked just like Indiana Jones's. It was very exciting. Did he did point a finger of doom at you at any point? No, he didn't, which means I mustn't have been doomful enough. Did you write on your eyelids? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> what, notes for the interview? Notes for the interview. It was surprisingly hard to read them, but apparently Nick could, so that was helpful. Did, Nick was telling me that the words... <laughs> Very small written words were, I killed 20 people after I was a barrister. Please forgive me. <laughs> Apparently it was very small. It was quite small. It was. I mean, my eyes aren't that enormous. I, I couldn't star in Tim Burton's big eyes. So, you know, it was it was difficult to fit them I all think in. it may have just been smudged mascara and he has a very <laughs> weird brain. She's an amazing barrister. She got herself off the charges. So well done, Helen. Thanks. There you go. Even though you were covered in blood. I feel like I've been libeled by our own podcast. No, libel doesn't exist. You must have learned that in your big barrister books. And that's it for this week's Empire Podcast in association with Beyond Two Souls. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be talking Thor, The Dark World, which is out on Wednesday. Yay. I think we can say it's very good and you should go and see it, but we'll discuss it in more depth next week. And we'll also be joined by the man who plays Loki, Mr. Tom Hiddleston, its director, Alan Taylor, and Marvel head honcho, Kevin Feige. Also, in a coming together of movie podcasts that makes the Avengers assembly and look like the meeting of a local book group, we'll be talking to one of the scions of Wittertainment, the great Dr. Mark Kermode. Until then, it is goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. It's goodbye from Ali. Bye. It's goodbye from Dan. I'm sorry for everything. <laughs> You're true. And it's uh, goodbye from me. I'm off to work on my own Wilson impression. Helen. Still so bad. I thought it was quite good there once. See you next week. Bye. Rootin' tootin', got my guns and six shooters. I'll tell you all on Bill Bill. <laughs>Now it's time for the science bit of the Empire Podcast, where Ali, the editor, that's me, by the way, uh, tells you a bit more about our sponsor, Beyond Two Souls. A psychological action thriller, Beyond Two Souls features a brand new game engine, a compelling original story, and, as mentioned previously in the podcast, a top-notch Hollywood cast in the form of Ellen Page and Willem Dafoe. It's also got a score by Hans Zimmer. This makes it a sophisticated, technologically advanced, immersive gaming experience only on PlayStation 3. In it, you'll live the extraordinary life of Jodie Holmes, played by Paige, a young woman who possesses supernatural powers through a psychic link to an invisible entity known only as Aiden. Experience the most striking moments of Jodie's life as your actions and decisions determine her fate, traversing the globe with her as she faces incredible challenges against the backdrop of emotionally charged events never before seen in a video game. Beyond Your Souls is out now, so you can buy it wherever you like, whenever you like. Thank you for listening to this little bit of blurb at the end of the podcast. It is gratefully appreciated. And please do enjoy the rest of your week. Goodbye. <laughs>